This is Don Daneman. Mike Loeskamp. And I'm Pat McLaughlin of The Circle. And you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. She's making quite a sound, but we may drown. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Denny Sorokin, who's had such an interesting and eclectic musical career. He was the lead singer and guitarist for the group Every Mother's Son, which had a big hit in 1967 with the song Come On Down to My Boat, Baby. And that song reached number six on Billboard. He went on to become the band leader for Rick Nelson and the Stone Canyon Band. And he also wrote and played on a song called Sanibel, which was recorded by none other then Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And this song has a crazy story that's attached to it, and I'm going to let Denny tell that story. And he continues to record, perform, and teach. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Denny and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of his best works, and you're going to hear them, You're going to, we'll talk about them, you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know, if you're a regular listener, that I always feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen my song called The Ship from my recent EP, The Singles Project. Why did I do this? All right, well, follow me on this. Sanibel, which is one of Denny's great songs. It's an island, right? And how do you get to an island? By ship, of course. So I thought that it worked. So, Denny Sorokin, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you so much, man. It's just terrific. You know, I've followed some of your um, podcasts before and uh, seen what your live group has done. And I'm thrilled to be included in the enclave of rock and rollers as you've used. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I'm curious, as I was preparing for this, I sensed a nautical theme in your background. Okay. You had come on down to my boat, and then you had Sanibel, and you got to get to an island with a boat. So what's the deal? Were you a Jimmy Buffett fan or something when you were younger? How did this happen? Or was it just coincidence? Come on down to my boat was brought to us by uh, our producer, Wes Farrell. He wrote that. To this day, I don't really know what that song is about. And, um, <laughs> and go, going, I'm going to take my knife and cut the rope to the little red boat. And I, it, it, it seems like it, there's some uh, to be on Dateline or something. Um, wait, wait, wait. I have to tell you, when I was a teenager and that song came out, I just assumed it was kind of a subtext for getting your girlfriend onto that boat. You're all by yourself. And uh, you know what else comes from that. 
Am I right or wrong? Well, that was every you know, uh, teenager's subtext about everything, sitting in a classroom, <laughs> right. you know, staring at the bell. So it fit perfectly with the narrative. Yes. So tell me about that. That that song comes out. How old are you when that song comes out? I was maybe around 18. All right. And it was one of those kind of life-changing moments, wasn't it? Yeah. I was um, in community college, and I was sort of that baby boomers where there wasn't enough room, and they wound up, my grades were good enough to get me into something, but they didn't have enough room. So I was going, taking classes like in yeshivas in one place in an army base. And I wound up in Manhattan Community College. And I wanted to sort of be a music major, maybe do some film scoring and stuff like that. And we had been a, a folk duo, my brother and I, and um, a guy that had been sort of pseudo managing us said, look, I'm sharing office space with this guy, Wes Farrell. He did Hang On Sloopy, and he's a writer-producer. He's looking for bands. And we put together, like, just a, an informal fraternity party kind of band. And we went in, and he said, like, fine, good, I'll sign you. And Wes was one of those guys, like, it wasn't like he, you know, he Brian Epstein heard the Beatles, of the Beatles had heard him and went, wow, these guys. I mean, Wes went, like, I write him, I produce him, put some bodies in the chairs on the mics, and I'll do the rest. So, you know, we got signed to him. Who came up with the name? I always liked the name. It was different. Thank you. The name came from moi, me. I was still in school, and I was uh, in an English class. And I'd always wind up, like, in an, in an, uh, an honor English class, and there'd be too much reading, and I'm a very slow reader. I got what I read, but I was very slow. So I get poor grades. Then they put me like in another, you know, a lower, almost remedial uh, class. And then writing was the feature thing there. And then I'd be getting A's and blah, blah, blah. But anyhow, I'm sitting there and I'm reading uh, Moby Dick. And I really got into Moby Dick. But it's hard and it's long. And then the class moved on to Shakespeare. Hold on a second. You could have called the band Call Me Ishmael. That's right. For anybody that doesn't know, that's one of the few lines I remember from uh, my high school English. It was the opening line of Moby Dick. Am I correct? Right. And, and you'll, you'll remember it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's all you really need for literature. That's right. If, if you have those two lines, you get through high school English. Look, you, you know, you, you impressed you're an intellectual. It's at least you showed up at class, you know, once. Anyhow, I was reading Moby Dick. And it fallen way behind, and the class was into Shakespeare. So, you know, I'm trying to look at Shakespeare in class, but at home, I'm catching up on Moby Dick. And in Moby Dick, there's a line, and to the boats, every mother's son of ye. Now, okay, whatever. And then I'm reading, like, the, the next day, or even maybe the same day, in the Shakespeare thing, like, and every mother's son will know of, of the cloth that hath gone on, at the blah, 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 blah. But the name popped up, like, you know, within 24 hours in both of those books. It was Kismet, then. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I totally get it. So the, the muse was after me. I mean, you're 18 years old. You have a hit. I assume you're out on the road playing. Tell me what that experience was like at 18. Well, we were really one of the first bands, if not the first band, where A, it was an independent producer. Normally, uh, like Tom Wilson produced you if MGM signed you. They had their staff producers. Farrell produced and financed the album on his own and then shopped it around and sold it. And 
we were like the first band that they they really did like a, a month's worth of teaser ads. And then we went on one of these multi-city promotional tours, you know, with big posters and talk to the DJs and they had big parties at night. So that was really not the norm at the time. Was this your band alone or were you part of a bill when you're out there? Yeah, we just, it was just boom. It was like an every mother's son promotional tour. I see. We did some gigs. Like we did this great gig in San Francisco um, at one of these big, you know, hippie love festivals out on a mountainside amphitheater, you know, with a gazillion crazy people. And I remember reading, but sitting there reading a newspaper saying, you know, thousands of hippies in the, you know, in the pier. And, and to me, in back east, hippies were like greasers, but, you know, they were guys with the garrison, thick leather belts and stuff like that. You know, I thought they were too hip. You know, so I pictured like almost like, you, you know, like the guy from Greece characters. And then all of a sudden I saw all this, you know, flowers in your hair stuff. And it was overwhelming. Well, you were out on the West Coast during the Summer of Love, 1967. Yeah. That was the place to be. Yep. And I was maybe the only other guy who wasn't on acid. <laughs> So, um, you know, it, it was great, you know, a tremendous experience. Uh, in fact, I had mentioned college. I was going to try and be a music major. And uh, the guy, you know, the supervisors go, oh, yeah, well, uh, let's see, you don't have enough credits in art. You need some more art credits before you can take, like, but, uh, yeah, I never took any art classes because I was in every band and orchestra and school band and everything that they ever threw at me. And they said, oh, yeah, and you need a language, you need French, you need either, or Latin. Or, you know, I'm a nice Jewish boy. What am I learning Latin? Where am I learning Latin? And nobody told me I needed to do French. You know, I took Spanish for like seven years. Comprende? You know, they said, oh, well, you have to take And I went, you know, screw this. I'm making 10 grand a week, you know, out on the road. I've got the number six record in the country. Adios, amigo. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. You know, one of the many benefits to me of doing this podcast is being able to collaborate musically with some of my guests, who are among the best musicians in the world. My first collaboration was with the great Jim Peterick of the Ides of March and formerly with Survivor. Jim and I collaborated on The Fall of Winter, a song about a blue-collar worker who dreams of a better life. Also contributing was Elliot Randall, the renowned guitarist. John Helliwell was the amazing saxophonist in Supertramp, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. John collaborated with me on my 2023 album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade, and he's featured on several tracks. One of them is This Time. Tony Carey is a singer-songwriter and keyboard genius who played with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Tony has collaborated with me on several recordings, including his exquisite organ playing on All of the Time. And I'm finishing up a new collaboration right now with trumpeter Randy Brecker formerly with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Collaborations like these make the podcast very special indeed. As always, 
thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Well, listen, you know, I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary because we're talking so much about the record and I want to play it now for everybody that doesn't remember it or remembers it well like I do. She sits on the dock of fishing in the water uh-huh. I don't know her name, she's a fisherman's daughter uh-huh. Come on down to my boat, baby Come on down where we can play Come on down to my boat, baby Come on It's got that interesting kind of Farfisa organ sound to it. Am I right? It was a real 1960s kind of sound. Yeah, it was that cheesy, nasal, thin with vibrato Farfisa organ. Exactly. Hey, listen, I had one of those in my high school band. That's what everybody played back then. Yeah. Nobody could afford a Hammond and a Leslie. Or or the Vox, you know, like the animals had, you know, the Vox pseudo version. Right. What recollections, if any, do you have of doing the recording on that song? You know, my recollections were really just trying to, like, you know, what would George Harrison do? I was always big on vocals, you know, and I came from from kind of the folk school. So I just, I always loved harmonies, the weavers and and people like that. So, you know, I kind of had that, you know, that sort of Beach Boy kind of thing in the back of my, Beach Boy meets, you know, the, the folk pioneers stuff in my mind so there there are a lot of counterpoints and harmonies and things and then guitar wise is just like okay what is George Harrison playing what you know I was developing as an electric musician and as a session guy you know I'd been an acoustic guy banjo and and guitar playing in you know like a duo with my brother a folk duo so it was just really kind of and you know getting banging while you know having my Stratocaster and a little amp playing you know college band kind of things but I really had to say, I'm not playing Louie Louie now. You know, these are, I'm starting to write songs. Uh, Wes wrote that single. I wrote the majority of the material, you know. So, I mean, I sort of had to get into that, you know, how do you write a song stuff? How do you work as a as a guitarist in the studio, your amp and your, your pedals and what guitar to use and what kind of sound to get? Yeah. So, you know, just sort of, you know, I was like just thrown into like, rock and roll boot camp. You know, I'm glad you mentioned George Harrison because I always felt that George was the most tasteful guitarist, okay? He thought through everything that he put on record and it was always right. Would you agree? I would agree in terms of what was with record. From what I've read, now in the early stuff, it was him just doing kind of Chuck Berry knockoffs, which Keith Richards was doing a whole lot better than George Harrison was. Right. If you read like a here and there and everywhere, the engineers' books and stuff, there was a they had a tremendous amount of time spent on trying to get Harrison's solos and stuff. But what I loved about Harrison was the way he ultimately they'd come up with these signature things, these day tripper riffs. You know, a lot of the famous like Taxman solos and stuff were McCartney and not Harrison, even on, on Harrison's songs. But you know, just the way he came up with these signature pieces. These, these simple things, you know, the solos on, I feel fine.
I just wanted to try to duplicate that too. And it impressed me early. I, I, from the folk days, I knew you really had to be an accompanist. You had to support the whole song, whether it's just a one vocal or a duet singing. You know, so you had to really build an arrangement into a guitar part. And, uh, you know, Harrison, along with the rest of them, were great at setting up these things. And Harrison created these songs, which, you know, I, I keep the legacy of like, the solo has to be like singable. You know, it's not about how many licks I can play or, or how flashy. You want it to feel important and you want it to take the chorus and come out of the chorus or the verse like a melody and build and build and climb and then pow, take you right back into the bridge or the last verse or something like that. See, this is exactly what I was saying when I said that he was the most tasteful guitarist. And of course, every time that they played live, all those older songs, he played, he replicated the solos that he did on the record because he thought them out in advance. He wasn't about how many notes can I get into a particular solo. It was all about what's the right sound? What's the right sequence that fits within this tune? At least that's the way I looked at it. Yeah, I totally agree. And as they recorded the, the, the progression of the recording of George Martin, you know, pushing the envelope and the band themselves saying, no, we want more highs, more brittle. No, no. And the guys in the lab coats, at, at, uh, you know, at Abbey Road. No, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Crank it up, crank it up and turn it up. And, you know, they got those fantastic, you know, brittle, piercing uh, guitar solos and guitar parts. Terrific. All right. Let's move on to the next one. You left Every Mother's Son and you wound up with Rick Nelson. Tell us how that went. Well, first of all, I went out there to do a film called The Finks, which was somebody ripping off the the monkeys ripped off the Beatles. Hey, that's successful in film. Let's do it in TV. Some producers in New York uh, that used to laughing and stuff said, hey, let's rip off the monkeys and do a movie. So I went out there and I did this movie called The Finks. It was uh, a $10 billion movie at the time, big thing. I was like a monkey running around. They never released it. That was fine with me. Never released? Never released. It popped up on Turner Classics or something once. It was just awful. It's not even worth the time talking about. You can't even find it on YouTube? You can find everything on YouTube. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. And one of the critics said it might be the worst film that was ever made. Well, that's a distinction, right? But, you know, I did my part. And the cool thing with me is I was the only guy in the band. Lieber and Stoller wrote the songs for it. And I was the only guy in the band who was allowed to work on the session for the album. So I got to work for two weeks with a wrecking crew. Wow where I was playing rhythm guitar, I'm still on the tracks and I'm singing reference vocals and just, you know, being in that that combination and hanging out and working with Lieber and Stoller. I mean, that was the thrill of it, not having my head 40 feet high. I can imagine. You know, I just released what I call my lost album from 1994. It, it was the first album that I ever did. And uh, it was distributed by a company that went out of business and never did anything. And when I found it, and now released it, it was so liberating to be able to go back and do that. And I'm wondering how you would feel if the things were to get released for you. The movie was released, uh, you know, I, I did, you know, the best I could do with, you know, I'm not ashamed of anything that I did. The movie was just as big. It was a spy spoof. It was like the worst of, of uh, you know, James Bond meets laughing kind of thing. Had lots of, had 50s uh, old celebrities. Camp was coming in there. We brought in all these old Tarzan and Jane kind of people. 
Um, my best experience was I got to smoke a hash joint with Tonto and Hunts Hall from <laughs> um, the, the East Side Kit. That's an interesting combo. Tonto and Hunts Hall. That was one of the highlights of, of the whole of the thing for me. Anyhow, you asked about Rick Nelson. Um, I was just playing, you know, little gigs and a few sessions in L.A., just another pretty guitar face. And one night I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching a Tonight Show. I had a gig at a place called the Sewers of Paris. And it was a transvestite club in Hollywood. And off Hollywood Boulevard, you had to walk downstairs into a basement. Um, and the gig was like 2 to 5 in the morning. Or, or two to six in the morning. You had a heck of a booking agent to get you that gig, I want you to know. Yeah, and, that, and that, I was in like a quintet, but they'd only four three pieces. So it was me, bass, and drums. And actually, it was cool for me because I had to be like, you know, lead singer and and guitarist. And that's when kind of Cream was going on and, you know, that kind of power trio. So it really got me into being able to play and sing and, you know, push everything at once. Anyhow, the, I'm waiting to go down there and I'm watching TV and Rick Nelson and Stone Candy Band came on and he had this hit, uh, She Belongs to Me. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. Take the dark out of the nighttime, paint the daytime black. And I turned to my lady at the time and said, you know, that's the gig I should have. And she said, you want to be Rick Nelson? I said, no, I want to be the guy standing next to him who's playing a little twinkle, twinkle guitar and who's singing da 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 And off I go to the gig. Come home, go to sleep, get a phone call early the next morning. My friend Lindy Getz, who worked for MCA, said, quit. Call this guy, Willie Nelson, Rick Nelson's band. Just quit. They need somebody right away. That afternoon, I'm auditioning. I take one song, uh, Believe What You Say, which they sort of did, and I gave it a little more of a Derek and the Domino's push. Rick said, hey, great. We love it. Okay, let, that's it. I'm in the band for the next seven years. and. Uh, a week later, we were playing the Astrodome. It's our first gig. So you went from a transvestite club to the Astrodome. To the Astrodome. That's right. a, that's a that's a pretty big jump. Okay, good for you. Yeah, and I'll see the Astrodome, and I'll raise you about a month or so later, Carnegie Hall. Aha! You hit the big time there, Denny. Yeah, and he had the um, last album of a twenty album deal that Ozzy had made with. Uh, Deco, whoever the label had been. And, you know, we went to Deca, to Uni, to something, to MCA, to Universal. So I just kind of walked into a situation where, hey, we need material. And I wound up, you know, having like five songs on the album. Was this before or after Garden Party, for example? This was right after Garden Party. This band quit right after Garden Party. I went to a garden party reminisce with my old friend chance to share old memories play songs again and you know that was a big hit for him and normally a record company say great let's do a follow-up but the fact that he'd been on the label you know 29 uh, or 19 and three quarters of a year you know even if he had a bigger hit following up garden party nobody was there to take credit for it 
And, you know, he's just been around so long. It's like they didn't want to say, let's reinvent this guy. Interesting. They said, you know, let's pay up the last album, drop it. All right. We're listening now to that song you sent me that you did with Rick called One Night Stand. But the morning brings the sunlight and the sunlight brings my train. So I say goodbye to New York. I'm an L.A. man again. One night stand in New York City. Lights are bright and the girls are pretty. Held her heart and I held her hand. Goodbye, lady. I'm a one night stand. Tell us a little bit about that. First of all, disclaimer. It's not about... Hey, I'm having a one-night stand everywhere I go. I'm a rock and roll kind of guy. It's it's actually sort of like an apology. It's songs sort of about you meet somebody, you fall in love, and you know your plane's leaving at eight o'clock in the morning, and you, you know and that's happened. And you know you try and reconnect, and things gone. And you know you call after a, you know a few weeks, and a guy answers the phone, and you know just stuff like that. So it, it's really an apology. Like, you know, I, I this Kismet thing has to be torn apart. So I wrote that after uh, Carnegie Hall playing there. That was my New York City thing. And that's a whole, that's, that's more of a, a novelette than it is a story to tell here. But um, I got to record it with Rick. He loved the song. I think we did it. It was the B-side of uh, a single that we released from the album, one of Rick's songs. And at the time, it was FM radio, and they kept flipping it. We got a lot of airplay. And, you know, the Eagles were big at that time and stuff. And I thought the song really held up well. Well, it's a lovely country rock kind of thing, okay? And Rick was really kind of the godfather almost of country rock because he played this live in the Troubadour album, and he played his old songs, but he played them. He got in Tom Brumley uh, from the Buckaroos, you know, just just the, the master or one of the, you know, Ask any steel player, you know, on the, the their favorite, and you know he'll be on the top three of anybody ever. And you know, Rick used him to get their real, you know, before there was Sneaky Pete's and, and Burrito Brothers and Pocos and stuff. Plus, all those guys from those bands were all in the uh, bar at the Troubadour when he's out there playing this stuff live. You know, the Eagles and J.D. Souther and Linda Ronstadt and all these people are listening to Rick doing this stuff. And, you know, I got to work with Tom Bromley, who was like this this master steel player. Well, Rick Nelson was a star. And he was a star that, in a sense that was bigger than so many others because he had that whole television background as well. Okay? He was the, the dreamboat on television in the, in the 1950s and early 60s. Yeah, Elvis was the king and Rick was the, the prince. Not too bad. The teen idol. They call me a teen idol. Was even more yeah, of the that's songs. what he was. And one thing I want to mention about them, what I stand is, I had the extreme privilege of just uh, last year, the Country Music Hall of Fame put in a country, California country rock exhibit. And my one of my guitar heroes, uh, John Jorgensen, who you should try and get on your show, he was the musical director for a concert that they did for the opening, the grand opening. And he called me up and said, gee, Denny, do you, you know, would you mind? I, I'm getting one song to do for my solo spot. I'd like to do one night stand. 
I heard that. And before I did Desert Rose and stuff, and that song really influenced me. I said, you got it. He said, you, you know, do you think you might be able to come up and do it with me? So I got to perform the song with two of my heroes, Herb Peterson and John Jorgensen, in the Desert Rose Band at the concert for the uh, grand opening of the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame, Country Rock. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Nice story. Let's move on to Sanibel, because this has got that interesting story that goes along with it. I'm going to play a little bit of two different versions here. There's the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young version. Where they cry, ooh la la la, every night and every day. Sitting by the Gulf Coast, just a thousand miles away. And then there's the Denny Sorokin version. But tell us a little bit about how this whole thing came to be. This was not an overnight success, was it? Well, um, if you take the 360 nights, 65 nights in a year, and you multiply that by 18, <laughs> that's the overnight success. It was like 18 years on hold. All right. Explain that so everybody understands. Well, the song was written by, uh, I had been with a, with a, a girlfriend. And I was coming home, you know, okay, I'm picking up the Chinese food. Yeah, you want the extra duck sauce, fine. And yeah, I came home and like, she was gone. And like, alien abducted gone, like off the face of the earth gone. Like before the Chinese food was even opened, huh? Yep. And, uh, you know, I was like, Ur. and I get a postcard like six months later of uh, Sanibel on the front. And things says, wish you were here. The nights are beautiful. Wish you were here. No number, no anything. And I said, okay, maybe whatever. She was too stoned to write something on there. Or just this is a bait for me. Did I, you know, am I mad or will I want to go see her? And, you know, I decided now my urge was like, yeah, go to an island and blah, blah. But I said, I'm going to go to the island. I'll be there happy for two months. And then I'm bringing home the conch soup, honey. You want the extra oyster shells and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, honey, honey, where'd you go? And she's up in the mountains in Colorado. So I went to write the song really angry, but my guitar was in an open tuning, like Joni Mitchell kind of stuff. And I was in a little pool house that I was living in. And I saw at night the pool, the the lights and the the movement of the water and it just kind of put me in a, this mood for this little guitar lick and I wrote this song basically about the first verses about um, from the um, the prophet which was this famous metaphysical book of the time and the rest of the story is from uh, the Odyssey Ulysses and Penelope faithfully waiting for him and sirens of the sea and all that stuff and I was pulling into a parking spot on Sunset Boulevard, and this guy pulled behind me, and this was Alan McDougall, who uh, worked with mutual friend at AM Records. 
And he said, hey, hi, Danny, do you play slide guitar? Yeah, my kid wants to learn some. Can you uh, show him? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll bring him by tomorrow. Well, okay. And he wasn't like that, that good of a friend, but I said, you know, whatever, spread the guitar joy. And he drops his kid off and says, hey, I'm going over to Graham Nash's house. You got any songs? Well, I, uh, whatever. And I had a tape and I gave him a tape. Thought nothing of it. And he was Graham's best friend. They were best, for, uh, they were best men at each other's weddings, blah, blah, blah. And then a couple of days later, I get on my message machine, you know, hello, Danny, this is uh, Graham Nash. Uh, we're all going to get rich on our song, The Isle of Sanibel. I said, that's great. And then I don't hear anything from anybody. And I contact Alan a little bit later. Oh, no, no, I, I suppose he's going to use it, blah, 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 blah. I get a call from a manager. Uh, yeah, we want the song. Well, okay, you guys recording? Well, no. What are you going to do with the song? Well, he just wants the song. I said, is he just going to like nail the cassette to the wall with his lithograph and photograph? You know, call me when you got something. And this thing went on every like year and a half or two years. I get a little, yeah, hey, this is a secret project Graham's doing. It's really special. I can't tell you what it is, but it's really going to be something. We want the song. I said, call me back when you'll tell me what the project is. Good talking to you. So what was really happening behind the scenes? What was going on? I don't know. And then I get a phone call. I'm working on a script. It's about 10 years into it. And I go, hello, is Denny there speaking? Who played guitar in your demo of Sanibel? I said, well, I played and sang everything. Oh, uh, could you get down here right away? We had James Taylor in here. He couldn't cut the guitar part. Did I have a copy of James Taylor, you know, just breathing on my song? <laughs> I enshrined it with apples and incense. Then I'm in the studio. And it's like, like Blackbird. The song was all kind of built around this acoustic guitar thing. Um, I'm down there, I'm in the studio with them, and it was like the greatest thrill of my life and the greatest, one of the great nightmares of my life. <laughs> I got the song done, going to record it. Uh, they've got the basic tracks. Wait a minute, let, let me set the scene here. James Taylor's there, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young are there, or who's, who's there at the time? Me, no James Taylor, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and the top session musician guys in town. Okay. The guys that did all the Jackson Brown stuff, and uh, Greg Gorgi, Gorgi, whatever his name is, Bob Glob on bass. So they're all there to record this song. Yeah. And I walk in, and Crosby says, hey, you better play it just the way you did it on your demo, or you're going to screw it up. He didn't say screw it up. And uh, I'm there to say, guys play exactly what I'm playing. And this is what I did on my demo and do it. And, you know, they gladly did it. We got a take. I put down the major guitar thing, blah, 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 blah. Stills came in and uh, you can go on forever. Stills can be a little difficult, as some people have said. And I had had just about enough of his being difficult. Um, but I, I got all my stuff down and I went to the keyboard player and said, look, I've got these voicings on the guitar. You're kind of the, the musical director. You want me to just show you what I'm doing on guitar? And you can kind of just cop those voices on the piano, use them, don't use them, double them, throw them out, whatever. And it's, oh, yeah, that would be a great idea. So I'm doing that with him at the piano. Graham comes over, starts singing live. Crosby comes over, they start, you know, ready to sing. And it's like one of those Mike Douglas show moments where everybody's around the piano. And then it comes to the hook. And they cry, ooh, la, 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 la. And, you know, and stills had come over and they're all singing. And I said, this is the greatest moment of my life. This is a th I'm thrilled. And, you know, I couldn't do it without them, but they couldn't do it without me. It's my song. That lasted about maybe five to eight seconds. 
and still stop singing and says, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'll sing the song. What key? I'll change it a different. And Graham goes, oh, well, Stephen, this is going to be one of my songs. And, and Stephen says, well, hell, you don't need it. Maybe I'll just quit the damn band. Uh, and then I just jump right in and give him the dagger. I said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Stephen. That was a ballsy move on your part. Yeah, and they all look at me like instantly like, hey, he might be an a-hole, but he's our a-hole, and, you know, you, you ain't got no business. <laughs> and I immediately came out with it and said, they won't even have to change the logo. And, like, everybody kind of had that, <laughs> what is it mean? And then it clicked, you know, Crosby, Sorokin, and Nash. And they all got a big <laughs> laugh out of it, blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, it's supposed to go on an album. And the album came out. It's not on the album. All right, hold on a second. So the song was finished? And it was finished with Graham Nash singing lead on it. Is that the idea? I finished my part, did all the guitar, and Graham was supposed to sing lead on it. So I did the basic tracks and the guitar overdub. They just had to put the vocals on, whatever sweetening. Didn't come out on the album. I ran into Graham, and like another three, four years later, he was in Nashville at a songwriter's fest. I saw him backstage. Whatever happened? Hey, we lost the master tape. You're kidding. But I took home a little demo. And uh, the demo was fantastic, it was magical. So we've been in, there were pro studios, and now uh, Neil Young is in, Neil loves it, he wants to sing on one of the verses. I said, why didn't you just call me up? I got the things done, you know, two hours, we got the whole session done. You spend three weeks trying to pro tools this voice out, whatever. And finally, after like 18 years, I get a phone call, hey, you know, Neil loves it, it's definitely gonna be on the album. And, uh, you know, can we make cut this deal? And I cut a great deal, which he actually suggested out of fear. <laughs> and I readily accepted it because the deal was like 92%, you know, slanted in my financial favor. And uh, wound up on, on the Looking Forward album, the reunion album, which I thought was like, okay, you know, where do I start looking for a house? That's right. I was going to ask, how many millions did you make from that? I made basically whatever the deal, initial deal that I made. And uh, the money I got up front, which wasn't in advance, it was like they're paying me to be able to use the song. And the album was disappointing. Like, you know, it opened the charts in the 90s and it fell off. Their tour was incredibly successful. The album just never. But, you know, the fact that you, you wrote that song, you spent all that time nursing it through their nonsense. And it came out finally on an album. Good for you. Okay. That's a great story. Yeah. With a great ending. I've got a lot of free lunches out of the story. <laughs> All right. Listen, before we end this, I want to get to at least one of your songs that we've got teed up here. And I'm going to give you a choice. You gave me three. And I'm kind of inclined towards Never Too Old because it kind of ties in to the uh, podcast here. Because that's part of my uh, mantra here. You're never too old and it's never too late to follow your dream. So tell me about that song. 
basically it's your story it's my story it's the story of all of us who sat there and watched the beatles and we're like wow and you know put the garage and the song literally goes from you know hearing the beatles getting the garage band turning pro you know the drummer becomes a junkie and drops out and the moral to the story is Joe Foreman was a champ, but he got beat, but he made more money with a burger grill than he did as a, as a fighter. So, you know, it, it, it's got a metaphor. It's the best summary of the music business that I've ever heard. Okay. <laughs> Good for you. Actually, what I, what I would like, and the hook is just, you're never too young. You're, you're, never, you're never too rich. You're never too thin. You're never too old to rock and roll. No matter what shape your shape is in, referring to all, well, many of us, you're never too old to rock and roll. We have been speaking here with Denny Sorokin, who has had the most interesting musical life, from Every Mother's Son to Rick Nelson to Santa Bell with Crosby, Sorokin, and Nash. <laughs> I loved it all. There you go. All right. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, Denny, for being on the podcast. It's been fantastic. We're going to listen now to the song that started off the episode. It's my song called The Ship. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. And what's more, she's making quite a sound. Or we may drown Oh, we may drown The ship is going down I fear that we may drown We left our port and from the start Nothing seemed so wrong But came a storm Tossed us about We couldn't hold out long But we may drown Oh, we may drown ship is going down I fear that we may drown My wife and kids were sleeping so sound They didn't hear the waves As the sea Opened up on us I lost them in the waves Oh, I lost them in the waves Go down below The captain said the ship is going down We're far from shore And what's more 
she's making quite a sound We may drown Oh, we may drown The ship is going down I fear that we may drown I fear that we may drown.